Listener Production. I swear in this episode, more than any other episode, consider yourself warned. To whom it may concern, um, my name is Joey Watson. I'm a journalist in Australia and I'm trying to get in contact with Mr. Gordievsky. If you're a former KGB spy who defected to the West, there's a good chance you have an email in your inbox or a letter in your mailbox from me. Some have suggested I make contact with you, given your extensive career and experience in this area. I made it my mission to contact every single one of you I could find, to see what you knew about the operation to infiltrate ASIO. Thanks. No, um, regards, warm regards, Joey. The defectors I'm reaching out to are Soviet spies who switched sides during the Cold War. For different reasons, they betrayed their communist homeland, giving up the KGB's secrets in exchange for a new life, many given new identities. If the KGB found them, they could be killed. As the Soviet Union was collapsing in the early 1990s, some defectors living in the West felt like they were safe to come out of the shadows. Many became public figures, writing autobiographies. But with the rise of Russian President Vladimir Putin, Russia has resurrected an old KGB tradition of poisoning traitors living in the West. He told them he'd been targeted by the Russian Secret Service on the personal orders of Vladimir Putin. He and his daughter Yulia were found unconscious and frothing at the mouth in the town centre. Alexander Livinenko fell ill after meeting two Russian contacts. He drunk tea that had been poisoned with a radioactive isotope, polonium-210. It's a tactic Putin knows well. He used to be a KGB spy. The poisonings have increased since January 2022, just before the invasion of Ukraine, and are still continuing. It's been called sudden Russian death syndrome. Many people killed were outspoken critics of Putin's Ukraine invasion. You can see why some defectors I've been trying to contact have retreated. So I don't take it personally that almost none of you replied to my requests for help. But one of you did. You asked to remain anonymous and sent me a very brief email. Dear Joey, thank you for your email. There is nothing specific I can say about this case especially in the current climate. Of course, there have been KGB moles in the West who remain unexposed. Some have gone to their graves. Then you gave me a lead, a name. A recommendation. I've heard that Nigel West might have made some references. My best regards. Nigel West. I had to track him down. I'm Joey Watson, and this is Secrets We Keep, Nest of Traitors. Okay, Nigel West. It's 1am, I've just got home from a friend's birthday and I'm Googling following up on that email pointing me to Nigel West. Nigel West has been doing what I'm trying to do for decades. 
hunt and expose moles. When it comes to the world of espionage, some have called him the expert expert. His name is not actually Nigel West, that's a pseudonym. He's really Rupert Allison. I'm reading from his Wikipedia page. Rupert William Simon Allison is a British former conservative party politician and professional author. He was the member of parliament from 1987 to 1997. West was a Tory, Britain's conservative party. The Wikipedia page says he's lectured on spycraft at the headquarters of both the CIA and the KGB. Awarded the US Association of Former Intelligence Officers First Lifetime Achievement Award. He writes books and articles on the subject of espionage under the pen name Nigel West. The defector who'd emailed me said West had made some references. West has written dozens of books on spy stuff, so I started going through his most recent publications to see what I could find. There's one called Spy Swap. It covers spy operations during and after the Cold War. Spy Swap. The humiliation of Russia's intelligence services. It looks promising. I find a PDF copy and start reading. It's no spy thriller. It's dry and meticulous. Control F, Australia. ASIO, Control F. Okay, here we go. It mentions a lot of what I've already learnt. That ASIO found out it had been infiltrated. It brings up Operation Liver. That's what I looked into in episode one, which led me to the prosecution of Russian translator George Sedil. Then West writes about Gerard Walsh. This was ASIO's former Deputy Director General. I'd shown up to his house with chocolate-coated cranberries. He still hasn't gotten back to me. But here is Walsh again, in this book. Nigel West writes that Walsh was in charge of an operation given the codename Jabiru. This is the first I'd heard the name Jabiru. This was ASIO's internal mole hunt. It seems like Jabiru was set up before Operation Liver, before Sadil, and before the top-secret Cook report. A lengthy investigation that examined some 40 potential suspects. Eventually, the shortlist was narrowed down to three candidates. Holy shit. Ben West writes three names. Uh, I shouldn't swear when I'm recording myself. Uh, I probably shouldn't be doing journalism after I've been out. But anyway, here I am. Um, This is crazy. I can't believe that these names are just here. I find an email address for Nigel West and give him my spiel. Dear Mr. Allison, or maybe I should call him Mr. West. I don't know. Do I actually refer to him as his pen name or I don't Dear Mr. Allison Joey Watson here I'm a journalist in Australia against good advice I've fallen into the wilderness of mirrors trying to solve the question of Asia's Cold War era penetration I was wondering if you'd consider discussing the topic with me many thanks Joey This is such a weird feeling. I mean, I didn't even expect that these answers would be forthcoming at all, and now I've just got 
three names sitting here. <laughs> I really hope that Nigel West or Rupert Allison or let's go with Nigel West, I really hope that he responds to me because now I've got actual names from a deeply respected source. I've got to work out where they came from. Okay, good night. I had a terrible night's sleep. When I got up the next morning, I checked my phone. West responded. Thank you for your email. I'd be delighted to chat. Regards, Nigel West. I researched West a little bit more, with a clearer head. Nigel West's reputation wasn't as clean as I'd thought. He was a politician, after all. I found an article from 2001 where West had gone to court seeking royalties from a book he claimed to have partly written. The judge concluded that Mr. Allison was a profoundly dishonest man. Even though that was over 20 years ago, I needed to, as always, tread carefully. Hello. Hi, is that Joey? It is, it is. <laughs> How are you? Hi. So sorry, I was on the telephone. How can I help you? So if I'm not sure if you've done this podcast style before, but if I could just get you to introduce yourself and your work for the tape. Yes, my name is Nigel West. I'm a military historian that specialises in security and intelligence issues. And I've written a few books over the past 40 years touching on this particular subject. Nigel West and I talk for a bit about his book Spy Swap and his interest in hunting moles. Why did you include a section about Australian moles in Spy Swap? I think you can reasonably say that that virtually every counterintelligence organisation, Western intelligence organisation and counterintelligence organisation, has been penetrated by the Soviets at some stage. So the British, the Swiss, the French, Germans, the Norwegians, the Americans. Australia is no different. ASIO was not immune to penetration. I was very interested in the Australian mole hunt, partly because it had failed in Australia. So the professionals really hadn't been able to do the job. Why did you feel comfortable in naming those particular individuals that you named? Yes, you will naturally wonder how one can validate information and how one can be certain that one isn't being misled, deliberately deceived by people who's, after all, part of their trade is deception. And I use a system which is of elicitation, which is very common, which is called triangulation. And that's just simply hearing information from one person and then being able to validate it or bounce it off to other people who should know that information and to be able to check its authenticity. This didn't really answer my question. 
I understand the intention, but why then those particular names? Why did you feel confident that those particular names were worthy of being published? These were the names that came to the surface. These are the names that looked like they fitted a profile or there was something suspicious about them. There was something in their backgrounds that indicated that they might qualify. West is being evasive. But at this point in my journey, why should I be surprised? And without getting into what that evidence is, can I ask why why it is that that evidence can't be shared? I can't answer that. Because it's so... By se- giving you the... It would be compromising. It's that level of sensitivity. I think you just have to accept that there was an element of evidence that was not available to ASIO. And it's, it's too risky to discuss further. Yep. Okay. I was disappointed, and I think Wes could tell. You have a distinct advantage in that you don't work for the Australian government. And therefore, you are freed of lots of things, lots of restrictions that would bureaucratically would prevent them from knocking on doors. They can't pursue leads. We can do things. We can knock on doors. And when I say we, I mean sort of independent contractors and mole hunters. So you have huge advantages pursue the right leads and there will be answers out there. Intelligence agencies need to acknowledge their history and they can't leave loose ends. You have to pursue those cases because unless you do so, you cannot be 100% certain that you have the full integrity in the contemporary era to run good operations. So the fact that there may have been a mole 20 years ago, the fact that that mole has retired or died is sort of irrelevant in today's conditions because you can be certain that that person will have recruited somebody else and that mole will be even harder to find in the organization. We speak for almost an hour and then at the end of our conversation, out of nowhere... Wes says a name, with no context. I'm confused for a moment. Then Wes says, look into him. I realised he was giving me a fourth name. Well, anything else you need, give me a call. Okay, I I really, really appreciate that. I feel very lucky. Good luck. Stay lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try my best. Speak to you soon. Bye. Four names. This matched what I learnt in episode 5 about the Cook Report, which I'd been told identified at least four suspected moles. I couldn't know for sure that the people West named were the same people supposedly named in the Cook Report, or whether these were even moles at all. West only published three names and then gave me a fourth, I don't know why. The direction this mole hunt has gone in is so strange. Why am I being dropped the names of potential Australian moles by a former British politician? But for the first time, I had names. 
I had to investigate all of them. Okay, I haven't told you the names yet, and there's a good reason for that. Remember, there's national security laws that prevent me from naming ASIO spies without their authorization. I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to go to jail for 10 years for naming spies that were still alive. Given it's been over 30 years since the Cold War ended, I felt like there was no way I was going to find a living suspect. My editor, Claire Weaver, and I start researching the names. Unlike when these guys were spies and they had to find things the longhand way, we were pretty lucky. Got a few more tools at our disposal. We start with the name that West had given me on the phone. I'll call him suspect number one. So this is his service record. Mm-hmm. What we can find in this is that he was born in Tasmania. It looked like he'd been a pilot in the Australian Air Force in World War II. He was born in January 1923. Which would make him 100. Mm-hmm. And then, oh look, there's the photos of him. Yeah. I think we've got his funeral notice as well here. He was dead, which means I can name him. Ian George Peacock, a supervisor of the espionage branch in the Sydney office. We then move on to the next name. This one's in Nigel West's book. Suspect number two. And here's what West wrote about him. He had been paid huge sums for his delivery of secrets, many of them from MI6 and the CIA. As in, the KGB were paying suspect number two for secrets from America and the UK that were being shared with ASIO. Sounds like he had incredible access. Yeah. Had not come under suspicion during his career and died after his retirement of stomach cancer. I also confirmed he was dead. His name was Jeffrey R. Smith, and West says he headed the organization's Soviet operations group. The next name, suspect number three. ASIO officers would recount rumors which were invested with great mystery. West gives a lot of detail. He writes that suspect number three was being watched by MI6. According to West, during the Cold War, he would visit Eastern Europe, disappear, and then re-emerge. When he toured Europe, he skillfully eluded his watchers in Finland and then re-emerged. Wow. There's so much detail in that. And that he'd been under investigation by MI6. MI6 speculated he was disappearing into the Soviet Union. Claire and I can't find anything about suspect number three online. I only find out he's dead when a source I talk to incidentally tells me that he attended suspect number three's funeral. His name is John C. Elliott, and he ran ASIO's operations in Canberra. So far, I had a supervisor of the Sydney espionage branch, the head of the Soviet operations group, and another running operations in Canberra. These sounded like powerful positions. If these suspects were the moles, I wonder what sort of power they had. Could they be the reason so many of ASIO's spy operations during the Cold War failed? Then we search suspect number four. There's not much on him in West's book. Claire and I start digging and we discover a LinkedIn page. 
feeling this is so funny like mm. retired at consultant yeah like i always feel like when people well, have that- linkedins where it's like you don't really understand what they did mm. <laughs> it's often a sign that they worked in intelligence yeah at least that's in my experience that's what i, I found out with a lot of people absolutely i'd be yeah. like i'm a consultant i'm a national security consultant, consultant. or something like that Seeing this LinkedIn page, I began to suspect that maybe suspect number four was still alive. The age is about right. It's a fairly uncommon name, I would think. Claire and I pulled together a profile of a man in his 70s, living in an apartment in Melbourne, overlooking the water. Then it's just amazing that he's alive. Mm. So then the question would be how we go about trying to do this. I have a living suspected mole that I can't name, but I do have an address. So I start writing suspect for a letter. We just go with the letter and then see what happens after that and then make a game plan? Yes. My name is Joey Watson. I'm researching Asia during the Cold War. I am making a podcast on the topic of KGB espionage during this period. Your name has come up in some forums and your story may be included as part of the podcast. I was hoping that I might be able to discuss some of this history with you and then I've given you my home address to try and, I don't know, sounds more intimate. Yeah, nice. Look, I think it's non-threatening. You're throwing the first ball in his court. You're explaining the context without making any accusations, importantly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good start. While I was waiting on a response, I wanted to see what more I could learn about suspect number four from someone inside ASIO at the time. I called Swamp, the former ASIO spy who you'd heard from in episode two. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, all good, quite clearly. This is a voice actor reading a transcript of my conversation with the real Swamp. I give Swamp the full name of suspect number four. Yes? Well, he's still alive and uh, I've got an address for him in Melbourne. You're not going to try, right? Well, what do you think? Well, um, I don't suppose it can do any harm. I mean, anyway, look, I was very... Very surprised. But because, you see, because of the provenance, I mean, I'm not inclined to sort of step back and say, oh, no, it it couldn't have been, because quite obviously it could have been. He had acquaintances, but but he never had friends. Now, his wife joined the organisation, and she did a pretty reasonable job. A wife. This took me back to what I learned at the very beginning of this investigation. When the Australian Federal Police were brought in to investigate ASIO, a profile for the mole was built around two clues. One of those clues was that the mole had a wife, who also worked for ASIO. And I think she was more of value than him. Much more value. You know why? Why? Swamp says she rose through the ranks. Now, that made her extraordinarily powerful. You see, that's old KGB tactics from donkey's years ago. If you could get a married couple in a spy ring, well, that's good stuff. I mean, 
I would have thought the KGB had a bloody good hand. Swamp can't confirm that suspect number four was a mole, by the way. He's just hypothesizing here. Without Nigel West's sources, I have no evidence that suspect number four or his wife are even suspects at all, let alone moles. But the fact that his name is in Nigel West's book, I need to find out more. I continue to call around. I hear more stories from my sources about suspect number four and his wife, but nothing concrete that could prove they were traitors. It's hard to gather evidence to prove someone is a mole especially when the whole point of spying is deception. It's clear a criminal investigation dealing with treason would be extremely difficult, and maybe that's why Australia hasn't seen the mole or moles brought to justice. But by keeping so much of this story secret, ASIO has created a vacuum for all sorts of rumours and unresolved questions. And now I'm following leads from a former British politician. I thought there might be some answers for me in an apartment overlooking the water in Melbourne. I was able to confirm suspect number four's wife was also living at the address where I'd sent the letter. I'd had no response. It was time to go and knock on suspect number four's door. Okay. Here we go. Look, I don't even feel nervous anymore. I just really want to speak to this guy. Oh, hello. I'm sorry to show up unannounced. My name's Joey Watson. I'm a journalist. That's next time on Secrets We Keep, Nest of Traitors. Until then, it would be great if you could help get the word out about this series by spruiking it to your mates or leaving a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Subscribe and follow Secrets We Keep to stay up to date. And if you want a slightly more intimate connection, you say, maybe have some information about this story, send us a message. Our email is secretsweekeep at sca.com.au or you could also send me a letter. GPO Box 22, Sydney, New South Wales. And a reminder, if you want to hear more from us, we have a whole YouTube series. It's called Nest of Traders Declassified where me and my editor Claire go behind the scenes of every episode. Secrets We Keep, Nest of Traders is created and hosted by me, Joey Watson. Our supervising producer is Jake Morecambe, executive producer Ellen Leibeter. Sound design by Niall Fernandez, Bonnie Lavelle did the fact-checking, and Matt Nikolic made the theme song. We used archive from Sky News UK and ABC News. Also, if you're playing along especially closely, I'd like to shout out some of the stuff I've read making this series. I've sifted through stacks of material from journalists and authors written over the decades that's helped me to understand this world. They include Australia's Spies and Their Secrets by David McKnight, Displaced Comrades by Ebony Nilsson, The Scorpion and the Lotus by Harry P. Russell, Secret by Brian Tui, and the three volumes of ASIO's official history. This episode was recorded on Gadigal and Wurundjeri land, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present.